0: Hey everybody! This is Marn. What you are about to hear is a episode that is a part of a pilot season of a horror book club podcast that was recorded in the winter of twenty nineteen slash twenty twenty. With the last episode being recorded literally right before quarantine uh, went into effect. That's just some context for the pilot season of Dead Letter Society. After this season airs, it will be back with a slightly different format, but until then, enjoy! A Horror Book Club podcast. I'm Marn, your spooky host. And every other week, I'm going to bring a friend into my library of terrors to discuss a novel, short story, or bit of interactive fiction that scares us. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Stephen King's It. And with me is Alyssa, my co-author of Prairie Song, my girlfriend, curator, and reviewer for reading while queer at (laughs) Tumblr.com. Yes, hello. Before we talk about the book... Um, I want to do content warnings. If you've seen the movie or know anything about the movie, you probably know some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Uh, If you've read the book, obviously you know what we're going to talk about. We are not probably going to get really deep into everything on this list of content warnings. This is just like a list of stuff that you might want to know is in the book before you make the decision to read the book. So content warnings include... Homophobic violence, lynching, gore, people dying in all sorts of horrible ways, children having sex explicitly on the page, suicide, spousal abuse, parental abuse, rape, racism, slurs, child death, gun violence, body horror, spiders, severe bullying, and fat phobia.
1: And amputation of oh. limbs.
0: Yes, thank you. That's a good one. Like a few times. I don't remember that happening more than once, but I'm sure it does. This book is a thousand pages long, so there's a lot of stuff in it. Some say too much. (laughs) (laughs) Before we talk about, in specifics, we should talk about the plot of this book. So, Stephen King's It is having a cultural resurgence in that the new movies have come out over the past couple years, but the original book is structured super differently to the movies. I know, Alyssa, you went into it. Having seen the movies, I don't know if that kind of skewed your expectations on how the book was structured at all.
1: Yeah, I didn't expect the book to be funny, and it it kind it kind of is. It kind of is like it really jokes about itself and like it plays practical jokes on the characters with like Marty. You're gonna remember this better than me, like. The- isn't there like a hilarious joke that you can recall specifically <laughs> right now, live on the air, that was written on a balloon or something like that?
0: Yes, that is true. <laughs> I don't like that you put me on the spot immediately. Well, the problem
1: is that um that I tried to think of it and then I couldn't. And um and that's that that's the end of the episode for today.
0: But, like, insofar as the structure, I feel like the movie tried to separate it in a very clean way, where it's, like, the first movie is the children, and the second movie is all the adults, and the book doesn't really do that, so you get- so the plot of the book is very hard to describe coherently, because it is a very much interlocked narrative of these- Kids realize that something is really wrong with their town. These kids are going missing. Um, One of the main characters, Bill, his brother, goes missing. We as the reader know that Georgie was eaten by it. And it's about this core group of kids called the Losers Club. Um, They investigate the child disappearances because Bill wants to know what happened to his brother. Uh, They realize that it's this like ancient evil entity and they figure out a way to defeat it. But it's also interlocked with another narrative about them as adults 27
1: years later?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming back to the town, having lost all of their memories of what happened to them as children. One of them, Mike, stays behind and there are segments with like his journals as he's realizing that like everything works on a cycle and the adults come back to the town, dairy, and they all have kind of more adult experiences with it. Like, it reaches out to haunt them again, and they have to defeat it as adults as they're still kind of getting their memories back of all of this weird supernatural trauma that happened to them as children and, like, what their relationships were like as children even now that they've, like, grown up and all gone their separate ways and don't remember each other anymore. It's weird in that it is a coming-of-age story and also an adult drama where everyone is grown up and married and comes back and meets up with, like, their people that they knew when they were 13 years old and have very, like, messy entanglements with each other, which is why I think people have struggled to adapt it to film. And I feel like we're going to be talking about the movie and miniseries adaptations a lot, because there's a lot to say about those.
1: The problem with adapting it to TV or film is that the good parts of the book are like, and here's a history of dairy. I'm going to sit down and tell you a story yeah. about what happened 50 years ago. It has nothing to do with the characters. It's like part of Mike's journal. It's completely irrelevant. And it's the best part of the book. All of it.
0: Yes. That's completely true. It I would say in a lot of ways is like Stephen King's like lamez or like Stephen King's God. moby dick. You're <laughs> right. Where he like We'll be telling, like, a coherent narrative and then be like, actually, let me go off and tell you about what dairy was like in, like, the 1800s. Or what if the characters went back in time to the dinosaurs <laughs> for a chapter? And that's why we're not gonna do, a, like, a point-by-point of every single thing that happens in this book, because if we did that, we would be here for three hours. <laughs> We would be
1: our own adaptation of
0: It <laughs> <It's> to audio. <laughs> we had just become an Argonauts episode where I'm like sitting here uh... telling, telling you every single plot point of It and you're like, okay, uh-huh.
1: <laughs> I could get behind that because I listened to the audiobook like three weeks
0: ago and I no longer remember It by Stephen King. Let's get started. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I have read the book twice, well, like two and a half times, um, and I read it for the first time, I think, freshman year of high school. Alyssa just super recently finished listening to the audiobook because we watched the second movie and neither of us was impressed by it, but I was like, I promise the book is different and she listened to me and then... Got the 50-hour audiobook. Yes, it was 50 hours long. It's just like listening to a 100 episodes of a podcast. It, it is. It is. So, where do we want to start with talking about the more specific stuff in this book? Because there's a lot of specific stuff that we can talk about.
1: Yeah, I am do we want to keep working through the story of it?
0: Or have we, or do we give up after the summary? I'm perfectly willing to give up after the summary, unless there's any like really specific stuff you want to talk about. Yeah. This episode's done. I think we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is, like, we can get really, really granular and talk about very specific plot details. Like, the book famously has a scene towards the beginning is based on like a real homophobic incident that happened in Maine and there's been a lot of things that people have said about that especially pertaining to the new movie and how people weren't sure that they were going to keep it in and they did and it was kind of really starkly violent in the movie in a way that people I guess didn't think that it was going to be and a lot has been said about how that's handled I don't know there's a lot a lot has been said about this book (laughs) in general, and we're probably going to say a lot more, and it might not all be good. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I guess we could talk about the main characters. We probably should. So, that no, that would be a good place to start, but well, we already started talking about homophobic <laughs> violence, which is the worst place to start, so let's let's get in there. <laughs> let's get in that. Yeah, we can talk about that. <laughs> because, well, the weird thing about that is that the book kind of kicks off with that, but the characters directly affected by that don't reappear in the book like ever again that is one of the things i really like about this book where it's like they
1: really take their time with these side characters who do not show up they just don't come back it's like a short story that stephen king wrote about these people who live in this town and it's self-contained and no one in the main cast ever finds out about it but it still like builds dairy as this evil community which is kind of the point of the whole book. Yeah. And it's why it's really hard to adapt, because if you don't really understand the evil community aspect of it, like, you can be like, oh, that's an evil alien, and it's here. It's bad. Point to that thing. But the problem is, like, the town itself is like, we love being evil here. It's great. Let's just kill people every 20 years.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like that's... A really uniquely Stephen King thing that he does, because I can think of a lot of his books that very specifically like take place in a community and like something happens in the community and he goes into great detail about it how it affects like all of these different members of the community, even though ne- they don't necessarily ever come back into the story. Like Under the Dome does that, Needful Things does that, The Tommyknockers does that, Cujo does that. And, I don't know, I I feel like that might just be, like, a thing that he is fascinated with, having grown up in, like, small-town Maine. But, I don't know, I think it's very interesting. And he also has, like, certain fictional towns that he will keep coming back to, like Derry and Castle Rock. You should read Meanful Things, it's good. Maybe. It's kind of similar to It. Like, the, the premise is that, like, it's set in Castle Rock and a guy who might be the devil comes and opens up a store in in Castle Rock and is like, I can get you any magical item you want, but you have to like do me a favor first and he uses the favours to like pit the people of the town against each other in like very small ways until like the whole town becomes like a warring state. That's wild. It's really good. It's like one of my favorite Stephen King books. I know a lot of people don't like it, but um, that's my controversial take for the day. So yeah, we should uh, we should talk about the main characters of it. What are you looking at?
1: I'm looking at the date first published, which is 1980.
0: Yeah, the so the the kids part takes place in the 50s. And the adults part takes place in in the in the eighties, so that makes sense to me.
1: And I have a, an opinion on why that's really important, and you should never change that for an adaptation. But let's talk about the main cast.
0: <laughs> so the main cast is the Losers Club. It's Bill, who is like the leader figure, and his brother gets eaten by it in like the literally the first chapter of the book, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. There's Eddie who's like Small and weak, and like a hypochondriac because his mother is a hypochondriac and she puts all of that onto him. There's Richie, who is like a class clown, he's very loud and obnoxious and does like impressions. There's Bev, who is like quote unquote the girl one, <laughs> <laughs> she smokes. She, yeah, she's like a cool girl, uh, but she's also bullied. Uh, there's Ben, who is the new kid at their school. He is also bullied for being the new kid. There's Mike, who
1: doesn't go to their school? No, he doesn't go to their school. He goes to, like, Christian school.
0: Okay, I thought that maybe that was something they made up for the movie. but No, I'm, I'm no, that, that was
1: true. His mom sent him to Christian yes. school.
0: Yes, there's Mike, who doesn't go to their school and is black and there's and is constantly, like, the subject of racism done to him by the bullies that go to everyone else's school. And there's Stan, who is a Boy Scout and Jewish and likes birds. One of the things that I really liked about Ben <laughs> is how much
1: more there is to him in the books than in any of the movies that I can personally remember. It's been a while for the for the uh, miniseries, but like he goes to the library all the time yeah. and he reads and he's really
0: interested in architecture and I don't know. There's just a lot to Ben. He's the sweetie pie. Ben is one of my favorite characters in the book because I think he's like the first child point of view character you get and you kind of get to experience everyone else for the first time through him as he's experiencing them for the first time and I think that that was very clever and I like Ben a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, using the new kid as a way to meet all these kids who, like, have no reason to be like, and over here is Richie, and now I will tell you everything (laughs) about him as if I've just met him for the first time. (laughs) It was a good tool there. He's bad.
0: My favorite thing is that Richie, like, shows up in every single kid's, like, point of view before you actually meet him and, like, actually figure out what his deal is. He gets mentioned peripherally, like, hundreds of pages before he actually shows up. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Um, What other characters can we talk about? So there's also Henry Bowers, who's the bully, who's, like, kind of an important character. There's obviously It, who is a shape-shifting monster that lives under the town. There's Bev's abusive husband, Tom, who is semi-important in, like, the adults' chapters, and there's Bill's wife, Audra, who is also important in the adults' chapters.
1: And there's, like, there's recurring names that are, like, you kind of remember them while you're reading, but they aren't really characters so much as, like, part of the setting. Yeah. Like, I, I don't even remember the names anymore, but it would be, like, in the, in the 1950s, the next-door neighbor who finds Bill's little brother Georgie's, like, bleeding out body in a drain and, like, rescues him. I mean, doesn't save him, obviously. He died and, like, carries him away. Wait, I thought they just found his arm. Isn't no, that- they find him without the arm. What? Because the the arm gets ripped off and then eaten. Oh, for some reason in my brain, I thought they only found his arm. That's messed up. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm gonna- <laughs> you didn't say that. <laughs> So this guy, this this next-door neighbor whose name I don't even remember, like, later you find out in the 80s that, like, his kid is the police chief or something, or, oh, like, yeah. or something else horrible happens to him, and so, like, it's a pattern of, like, families have these sort of cycles of coincidental, horrifying trauma yeah. in the, like... Uh, this one kid will grow up to have a child who will be killed by the next iteration of it. Like that happens at least once where it's like Eddie Kasprak is running away from a bully and trips over the tricycle of a three-year-old. And then Stephen King comes in with that aside and is like, and that three-year-old would have a child. And in 1982, that kid would be eaten by it. And it's like, all, all that kind of stuff happens constantly and you're like, alright, we're interconnected here. That's, like, also something Stephen King does a lot. He, like, breaks... It's really good! And it's not in any of the adaptations. Because he can't be. Yeah.
0: He, like, I feel like in order to do that, you would have to have Stephen King himself walk on screen <laughs> as all of the action <laughs> bots, like, start talking directly to the viewer.
1: He just calmly says, freeze frame. <laughs> <laughs> Continues <laughs> <laughs> Messed up
0: This kid dies. Anyway, continue. He just leaves. He's uh-huh. like well bye. <laughs> yeah. Oh Steven. He does that a lot in his books though. Like he'll he'll just like stop the action scene to be like, by the way, this character's gonna die in five hundred pages. Yeah. So look forward to that one. Love it. Love to see it. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that this book is, by and large, about cycles of trauma.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That, you know, that brings me to something that I really want to talk about, Uh which is the setting. Yes. The era. Yes. It's so important. I have a theory, and I mean, obviously this has been written about, and Stephen King has probably done interviews about it that either prove or disprove what I'm about to say, Under researched over here, but I really feel that knowing that Stephen King took that piece of real life of that anti gay hate crime, it is about the AIDS crisis.
0: Oh, I've yeah, you've told me about this series. Nineteen
1: eighty, we're we're getting in there. We're getting in there, and people were just so fucking mean, like. I, I'm not going to be able to do justice to, like, y'all know what the AIDS crisis was. And just the the sort of complete lack of community there. It was, like, shut out, totally, like, sociopathic. Like, I do not have empathy for our fellow human beings. Go die then. Like, that kind of attitude is just, like... And all of a sudden, kind of crashing down on the culture and revealing itself. I feel like that had to be an inspiration. And then he goes back and is like oh we did that before in the 50s we have had this like mountain of hate sitting on our chests and it's always there under the surface and then it rises up and explodes in certain eras and then it goes dormant again like you get the roaring 20s where it's like oh liberal liberal good things happening you know we are so accepting of everybody and then there's a pushback and a conservative fallback. And it's like, oh, actually, we do lynchings again. And it goes in cycles. And he was describing that, I feel like, with a clown. <laughs> it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's there. It's in the text. And when you start moving the adaptations to be like, oh, it's, it's when they're kids in the 80s. Then they're grown ups in the now. You can't you can't do it. It just doesn't have as much of an impact. You can't tell the same story.
0: No, I agree. I, I think that it's weird that um I get why they did it for the new movies, why they've been the, Well, and it's also like the people who were reading it when it came out in nineteen eighty had been kids in the fifties. Yeah. And like they got it and I think that when they made the new movie, they thought that the children being children in the 50s was not going to be as relatable to, like, millennials, I guess. And they were like, well, we have to age them up so that millennials can relate to these children (laughs) as though, like, millennials don't watch movies set in the 50s or 60s and like find something to relate to yeah
1: we can like empathize with the others and a part of the book that i don't think i've i've really seen represented in any adaptation is how much dairy changes between the 50s and the 80s and i feel like that's a product of era and setting too it's like in the 50s okay, we got these mom-and-pop, like, dime stores, and it's all owned by members of the community. And, like, that's pretty, like, believable. Okay, it's the 50s. That's, like, how it was. We didn't have these, like, corporations that completely owned everything quite yet. And then when everyone comes back in the 80s, they're like, oh, my God, the town is gone. It's only banks. And I feel like that's what happened. Like, the 80s were, like, the, the... Turning point for a lot of places where it's like, oh, everything got replaced by a corporation
0: now. Yeah, I feel like they didn't show that at all in the in the new movie. They just like go back and dairy is pretty much the same. Which is crazy.
1: It's like you come back to your childhood home and it's the same. That's the message of our movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: like, wow, lucky us. Our childhood home is the same. Actually, you can go home again. Um, there was something else I was going to say. I feel like this book is very... I don't know if this is something that we want to talk about too much, because you've already kind of talked about it. I feel like a lot of people read queer subtext into this book, and, like, it's very rife with queer subtext, whether or not Stephen King actually intended that to, like, The point where they tried to make it text in the movie, and they, like, almost succeeded. I don't want to talk about that. That was very upsetting. (laughs) The book is good, though. (laughs) Again, much has been said um, about that particular thing. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's there in the book. Maybe even more so than the movie, which is why it was kind of baffling. That it was so subtextual. The movie.
1: <laughs> well, Hen- Henry in the book. That's a whole thing. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know what I think about that. But Henry and one of his cronies like mm-hmm. have a moment, not a romantic moment, uh, in like the junkyard when they think they're alone. And Bev is is sort of hiding because if they discover her, they're gonna beat the crap out of her and possibly murder her with firecrackers. That's, you know, an option that's on the table. But Henry Bowers and this
0: kid who later dies. Patrick. Patrick. Yeah, he gets killed by leeches. But before <laughs> that they do sex. Oh yeah.
1: That's what I'm talking
0: about. I, see, I forgot about that. I remembered like I remember that you get the one part from Patrick's point of view and he like more or less clearly has a thing for Henry and then he gets eaten by leeches. Patrick is just like a a picture of a serial killer. He's he's not super interesting to me
1: because he's Yeah. He's just like literally a real life serial killer yeah. transplanted into the page. <laughs>
0: That part is just memorable for for me, because, like, I really like the parts where it shows up as something, like, really freaky and abstract, instead of, like, a clown, or, like, a werewolf. Yeah. And I was like, oh, a swarm of flying leeches, that's horrifying. (laughs) And... i tra- no, I'm, just, I'm trying to figure out a segue. <laughs> the other thing I want to say is that, like, springboarding off of, I guess the the queer subtext thing. A lot of like the minority characters get a bad rap in the movies. Not maybe, maybe not like a bad rap, but they get. I don't know. I uh, I'm gonna stop you there, and maybe and maybe
1: say things on this podcast. Okay, because I don't remember what happened in it chapter one. It's I haven't watched it since it came out whenever that was. They really changed Mike's They did backstory and the black spot is different in it. It's not in the movies at all. But there was the concept of people burning alive. Yeah,
0: you so in the trigger warning for what we're about to talk about. Yeah. People burning alive and racial hate crimes. Yeah. In the in the movie his family was in a house fire and his parents burned to death and he made it out. That is completely messed
1: up. Yeah. And not just like that as a concept is messed up. It's messed up that they made it that out of what it was in the book.
0: And then in the miniseries, that plotline just like doesn't exist at all, I'm pretty sure. And see,
1: that is like one of the most important parts of the book, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and it also sucks because, like, the book goes to all the trouble of, like, making Mike a very interesting character and giving him this, like, really rich backstory, and all of the film adaptations are just like, nope. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so Mike's story, as, as the person who latest read the book, I'll, I'll take this upon myself. Okay. His, his story is that his family owns a farm kind of in the outskirts, outskirts of Derry, and it's him, his dad, and his mom. His dad was in the army years ago in the '30s, and uh, he was part of an all-black platoon, or army term for a group of soldiers. Um, they didn't see a unit. A unit, <laughs> anyway. They didn't see action, um, but they were all stationed up in Derry and. It was while he was stationed there that he experienced a lot of Derry's weirdness and just a special evilness. And obviously it it manifests as racism because this is the 30s. And you gradually get this very slow build toward the story of the black spot. Like you hear the black spot spoken chapters and chapters before you get the story. And this is while Mike's dad was a soldier that a club... All right, I got to back up again, because Stephen King's like this. Um, (laughs) So uh, the black soldiers in Derry, like, segregation times couldn't go to the white clubs. Uh, The town didn't want them there. The army was like, well, you can't come to, like, the white commissary. So uh, basically, the black soldiers built their own club from the ground up, like, dirt floor, Everything and it became like the best spot in town. Everyone wanted to go there until at some point it became so popular that it was too competitive with the white places and it was attacked by. See, it's not the KKK, it's something else, but it's basically the KKK. Yeah. It's like the North England, New England equivalent. And it's burned down and a lot of people are burned alive. And we don't get that story until much later because Mm -hmm. Mike isn't told it by his father until his father is on his deathbed. And it is just so important to Mike's character, to Mike's family, to understanding the town of Derry and how it operates. Like, it is not a clown. It is racism it is like just sort of the impulse to do bad things yeah. and a clown is there standing in the corner not doing the violence but everyone around it does the violence
0: it's like i know you haven't read the mr miracle like comic series that tom king does but there is a theme throughout the book where there consistently are black panels with white text that just say dark side is like dark side like the dc character uh-huh. um and it's always when, like, a character is at a really low moment or is questioning something. And Tom King has said, like, "Dark side is is the expression of knowing that you're about to make a really bad decision, but that there's no other choice and you have to do it. And it's like, mm. it's kind of like that. It's like a metaphor, but also a big scary monster.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. So anyway, Mike gets shortchanged a lot.
0: Yeah, he because- does. And it's like they, in in It Part 2, like the, the newest one, they really tried to make him an important character. But they did that by just like completely changing every single aspect of his
1: character. Well, I mean, even just taking it back to Chapter 1, like it's unacceptable to like make the fact of black people burned alive in the book into... But it wasn't a racist yeah, thing. He yeah. accidentally died in a house fire. It, like, completely subverts the point of the book.
0: Yeah, in the in the movies, the, his parents dying has, like, nothing to do with it. It's just, like, something that it makes him feel bad about. Which is a very weird stance to take. And it was weird because, like, I remembered really liking Mike in the book. Like, he becomes a librarian and he's, like, the only one who stays behind and, like, kind of chronicles all of the stuff that's wrong with Derry. And he's the only one who, like, remembers what happened to them as children, which is a very important part of his character. Like, he's the only one as the adults, who, like, remembers all of this trauma that happened to them. And he is kind of, like, helping the rest of them remember. And
1: his father kind of played that role as well. Yeah. Like, back in the in the 50s, like, he obviously, like, wasn't a main player but you can see how like Mike kind of has this inherited sort of thing like my dad quietly remembered horrible things and didn't even want to tell me but he was like so drugged up on his deathbed that he like told me this awful story about a lynching that he was like a part of like he almost died and then Mike kind of ends up filling those shoes too and it's again this like intergenerational cycles yeah not even just trauma but like cycles like you become your parents and you you know continue yeah. in their footsteps
0: yeah and there's something else I want to say about that but I want to continue about Mike yes! for a second I just, want, I just want to like put a pin <laughs> in that because I was thinking about it early, about something earlier that has to do with that and it made me mad that the, the new movie just is like oh Mike is like edgy and he like tricks all of his friends into coming back and like helping him defeat it when that's like so clearly missing the point of his sections of the book
1: Yeah, yeah, and what was with that thing in It Chapter 2, where Mike was like, I read this chapter of a book about Native American (laughs) rituals, let's just try it, and, like, he didn't know if it would work, or, like, what? Because that that wasn't in the book at all. Well, isn't there
0: some weird Native American stuff in
1: the book? So, in the book, it's less stupid, because... They're all kids, and one of the points in the book is that fear is defeated by belief, no matter if your belief is, like, factually right or not. And so, if they, like, get this book out of the library, they're like, oh, wow, oh, boy, like, if this was an action-adventure comic, the first book we picked off the shelf would contain the answer, and we just open it up, and we read this book, and no matter how simple it is, like, this is the thing to do, and that... Very much is, like, even talked about in the book. Like, Bill will be like, and I just knew it was right. Like, as if an outside force is kind of moving me towards something. So, like, very childlike ways of thinking about the world work when they're children and they come up with these things. So, they find a book in the library about some Native American practice. I don't think it's even specified in the book. Like, uh, sitting inside an enclosed space and... Burning wood and inhaling smoke so that you either pass out or you are so deprived of oxygen that you have a vision. And they're trying to have a vision in order to get an answer about what to do about it. And that's the Native American component in.
0: The oh book. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they like they do that, and then they go back in time and they see uh, in the dinosaur times when it was an alien and crash landed to Earth. And they almost die and they do almost die, <laughs> they die, which all of the film adaptations leave out, which, like, on one hand, I get it. It's a bonkers concept that, like, Stephen King was like, I'm going to write a couple chapters where these kids, like, go back to the time of the dinosaurs and experience an <laughs> alien crash landing to Earth. On the other hand, kind of important.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, you can tell a meaningful story without it, which is why they cut that as yes. the turtle. Like, you can.
0: I love the turtle. Can I, we talk about the turtle, please? I, I also
1: I also love the I also love the turtle. Can I put a pin in the turtle? Yes, though? we can put a pin in the turtle. Because I just wanted to expound for a minute oh God, okay. on on the point of like very childlike things being powerful. Just to give a couple more examples. Yes. Like and I think these are in the the movies too of like Eddie's aspirator works to defeat it, yes. Yeah. Because he sprays it and yells "battery acid" and believes it's battery acid in there and stuff
0: like and that. And the bird book. And the and bird. Stan, book. with the bird book. Yes, that's one of my favorite scenes in the whole book. I'm so mad. Okay, I have I have to talk about this now. Um, I'm very mad that in the new adaptations of the movie, they preserved Stan's Jewishness as kind of the only big aspect of his character because in the book. Like, they make a point out of the fact that he's Jewish, but, like, he's not, like, the son of a rabbi. Like, he's also a Boy Scout, and he really loves birdwatching. But in the movies, they did a really weird thing where they kind of make it a huge aspect of his character that he's Jewish, and it, like, becomes the only aspect of his character. And, like, his whole character arc revolves around, like, him being the son of a rabbi and, like, having his bar mitzvah. And it's, like, I understand why they did that and at the time when the first movie came out I was kind of into it because I was like oh boy visibly Jewish character but I think at the same time doing that removed a lot of aspects of the character that make him so special in the book like he is the only skeptic kind of out of the children but he has this experience with it. That is like one of my favorite scenes of the book where he goes into, he goes into the house like by himself, right? What, how does, wait, what are you, wait, what are you talking about? He goes into the house on Neibolt street. Um, wait, I'm going to find wait, it. I don't remember
1: that. Cause in the, I remembered in the book that he was like, he was the last kid to ever admit that it is real. He was like, no, I don't have a story about this thing. You all have this shared experience and that's great, but not me. And for me, i i i thought that his his experience was he's at the park because someone tells him that um a rare bird has been seen at the bird fountain I mean, at the does,
0: park maybe it does happen at the park and, and I'm so, of the two things
1: so he brings his um he brings his like bird identifying book to the park with him and he's like kind of looking for this bird um something else lands and so he looks to identify it and gets distracted, he misses it, and it's in, like, that moment, while he has that book out, that it manifests itself and he has to name the birds at it. I
0: think... I think that you're right, and I was just...
1: (laughs) I just don't remember the manifestation. Like, was it Mike's bird? Like, the giant bird?
0: I think that you're right and I was just imagining that it took place inside the house, because they go to that house so goddamn much in this book.
1: Eddie has a solo thing at the house, and then Mike and... Bill, no, sorry, Richie and Bill, Richie go, to and Bill go to the house together to defeat it with a pistol and a slingshot. And that's when the werewolf appears to them. And then they all go together, I think.
0: Wait, I know, <laughs> I know for a fact that I have that part marked in this book. We are, Yeah, I have my, like, annotated <laughs> copy of It from high school. Well, while,
1: while you're looking... I wanted to add a- about um, how they ruined Stan for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not really ruined, but in the in the book, he's so much less of just an archetype of like, here's some symbols of Judaism, I guess, a bar mitzvah, here you go. Or as, as in the book, it's like his family actually isn't that connected to their Jewishness. And like his friends are like asking him questions about it and he's like, I don't really know what kosher means, but it's just a thing that people say in my house. (laughs) Like, I thought that that was, like, a really honest take. Like, not everybody is the rabbi's kid. Not everybody is super connected. And with his family having moved up to Maine in a small town, and they're the only or one of the only Jewish families, like, I don't know, it's well developed and it's well thought out. And it's not just kind of lazy slap some rabbi's son in there, you know?
0: Yeah, I feel like the the first time I read this book, I was like, oh, it's cool that Stan is Jewish. And then the second time I read this book, I ended up really enjoying him. And he kind of became my favorite character because I could identify with him a lot. Like, he's this weird Jewish kid who, like, doesn't have a lot of friends at school and, like, has a very morbid sense of humor and, like... uh, doesn't have an extremely religious family and was like oh i love stan actually
1: <laughs> something that's really interesting about how his character is written is that he's the victim of anti-semitism like anti-semitism is a big thing in this book but it's it's like the background radiation you know like like eddie's mother or someone someone's mother is like really anti-semitic and just like says these things and then the kids repeat them to stan i mean you don't I don't know that you ever get Stan feeling like bad about it, but he reacts in this very sort of like minority appeasing yeah. the majority and like playing it off way. Like there's this one there's this one section where uh it's probably Richie who says this where he's like Hey, hey, Stan! Like, I hear that you are a Christ killer. That is literally, and then
0: that's literally the scene where they are introduced. Richie is like, "Stan's a Jew," and my dad says that that means he kills Christ.
1: And then Stan comes right back without missing a beat, and he's like, "I think that must have been my father." And it's just like, I don't. It just feels so like so true. That's to
0: like have this, that is his first line of dialogue in the book. I'm pretty sure, as yeah, a chi- like as a child. It, it just seems so,
1: so, like, true to an experience of, like, kind of being an outsider amid a group of people, like, being the other and just being like, alright, I'll play it off, you know, I'll, I'll fit in here.
0: And, like, it's established that he has, like, a really morbid sense of humor that the other kids, like, don't understand. Uh-huh. Like, at one point, one of the kids, like, makes a joke or something about them, like, breaking all their bones or whatever, like, getting themselves killed, and he, like, thinks it's the funniest thing in the world, and the <laughs> other kids are, like... Weird. (laughs) I underlined a lot of stuff about Stan in this book. (laughs) Oh! Oh? Sorry, I just found something really interesting. So, like, I've had this talk with other Jewish people before about how, like, weirdly Stephen King, like, inherently gets Jewish horror so right in this book. (laughs) It's, like extremely strange coming from, like, Can you read the passage? Did you find it? Uh, I haven't found that one, but I'm looking at one of the scenes where they're in the tunnels, and they they smell it in the tunnels, basically. And, like, it smells like each of their monsters, basically. Like, to Eddie, it smells like the leper. To Bev, it smells like her father. Uh, but Stan, it doesn't smell like how he sees it. Um, it says, "To yours, it woke a dreadful memory from his earliest childhood—an oddly Jewish memory in a boy who had the only who had only the haziest understanding of his own Jewishness. It smelled like clay mixed with oil and made him think of an eyeless, mouthless demon called the Golem, a clay man that renegade Jews were supposed to have raised in the Middle Ages to save them from the GoYim, who robbed them and raped their women and sent them packing." He gets the longest description of what the smell is like to him, and it's not even his monster. It's the golem, which is bonkers. Like, Stephen King is like, I don't know, he's on some shit, man. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing I like about Stan is, like, to go in accordance with the Jewish horror thing, he's never really, like, scared. He doesn't get scared in the book. Like, even when they're in the tunnels, he's like... Yeah, I can stand to be scared. I don't like being dirty, and I don't like no not knowing where we are. And yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like, I get it, man. Like, Stan is the Stan is kind of the character who understands that, like, even if they are fighting a monster, there is like bigotry and anti-Semitism and stuff out there, and there's like concrete stuff to be scared of that isn't like an alien monster.
1: I have. A really long quote to read is it the it's the offense quote
0: yeah that's like my favorite my favorite quote in the whole book i'm looking for in the in here
1: i mean i i have it i have a really long version of it and i'll just i'm just gonna go in but it's kind of the perhaps the cap on the discussion of stan yeah. for now like we're putting a pin in stan with this they were looking at him expectantly their eyes both troubled and faintly hopeful But Stan found he could not explain how he felt. The words had run out. There was a brick of feeling inside him, almost choking him, and he could not get it out of his throat. Neat as he was, sure as he was, he was still only an eleven-year-old boy who had that year finished the fourth grade. He wanted to tell them that there were worse things than being frightened. You could be frightened by things like almost having a car hit you while you were riding your bike, or before the sulk vaccine, getting polio. You could be frightened of that crazy man Khrushchev, or of drowning if you went out over your head. You could be frightened of all those things and still function. But those things in the standpipe... He wanted to tell them that those dead boys who had lurched and shambled their way down the spiral staircase had done something worse than frighten him. They had offended him. Offended, yes. It was the only word he could think of, and if he used it, they would laugh. They liked him, he knew that, and they had accepted him as one of them, but they would still laugh. All the same, there were things that were not supposed to be. They offended any sane person's sense of order. They offended the central idea that God had given the earth a final tilt on its axis so that twilight would only last about twelve minutes at the equator and linger for an hour or more or up, with, up where the Eskimos built their ice-cube houses. That he had done that, and he then had said, in effect, "'Okay, if you can figure out the tilt, you can figure out any damn thing you choose.' because even light has weight, and when the note of a train whistle suddenly drops, it's the Doppler effect, and when an airplane breaks the sound barrier, that bang isn't the applause of the angels or the flatulence of demons, but only air collapsing back into place. I gave you the tilt, and then I sat back about halfway up the auditorium to watch the show. I got nothing else to say, except that two and two makes four, the lights in the sky are stars, if there's blood grown-ups can see it as well as kids, and dead boys stay dead. You can live with fear, I think, Stan would have said if he could, maybe not forever, but for a long, long time. It's a fence you maybe can't live with because it opens up a crack inside your thinking, and if you look down into it, you see there are live things down there, and they have little yellow eyes that don't blink, and there's a stink down in that dark. And after a while, you think maybe there's a whole other universe down there, a universe where a square moon rises in the sky, and the stars laugh in cold voices, and some of the triangles have four sides, and some have five, and some of them have five raised to the fifth power of sides. In this universe, there might grow roses which sing, "'Everything leads to everything,' he would have told them if he could. "'Go to your church and listen to your stories about Jesus walking on the water. "'But if I saw a guy doing that, I'd scream and scream and scream. "'Because it wouldn't look like a miracle to me. "'It would look like an offense. "'Because he could say none of these things. "'He just reiterated. "'Being scared isn't the problem. "'I just don't want to be involved in something that will land me in the nuthatch.' And that's Stan.
0: <laughs> that is Stan. I've I've said so much about that quote. And, like Stephen King somehow nails like the intensely Jewish experience of like having this great, almost like cosmic horror of knowing that you like belong to a people that a lot of people want to see dead, and like knowing that there's nothing scarier than that, and like. That it's constantly out there and that constantly horrific things are happening every single day and not understanding how to communicate that to your Gentile friends without seeming like a completely crazy person. (laughs) And that's why I'm mad uh, that they messed up Stan in the movies. He's okay in the miniseries, I'll give him that. They still made him a Boy Scout. (laughs) Yeah. They gave him that much. (laughs) They gave him
1: him his dignity.
0: The other thing I wanted to say was, like, so I feel like the Jewishness fits in with, like, the generational trauma of the book. And I feel like there's also much to be said about parents in this book and, like, dads especially. And I feel like there's something to be said about the fact that it's established that because the Losers Club tussled with it, they can never have kids. And that's the thing that is established in the book. Like, they all become very... Famous and wealthy, but they can never have kids. And there's a lot of dad stuff going on. (laughs) There's
1: a lot of dad stuff. Like, I kind of want to go back to, like, how they sort of magically all became, like, top of their field and extremely rich. Yeah. Like, that, I mean, that's the turtle. We we still have that pin in the turtle. But let's talk about dads. Let's
0: talk about dads. So, an interesting thing that I was recently reminded of. That is never in the movies, even though it would make sense. Is that Eddie's mom has her whole complex about him being very ill because his dad died of cancer?
1: Yeah, yeah, that that did keep co- coming up in the books, and it's like Eddie hardly thinks about it. Yeah, it's like his whole world is centered around mom.
0: Yeah, it's but there's like odd. there's a lot of that in the book, though. Like Ben's dad is gone; he's a soldier? He died, right?
1: I don't know. He had those silver coins that he gave to Ben.
0: I'm almost certain that his dad is dead. Oh, yeah. I, I remember that it comes to him as his dead dad. See, I don't remember that, but... Yeah, because yeah, he he's, he's, lives with his mom, and he she like doesn't him.
1: understand that he doesn't have friends because she's so busy working all the time.
0: Yeah, Ben lives with his mom and his aunt, or his cousin or something. Anyway, Ben's dad is gone... I don't think you ever meet Stan's parents. Or if you do, it's, like, very briefly. Yeah, they don't really play a role in the book. Bill's parents are, like, around, but obviously traumatized because their their other son just died. Bev's dad is shitty. Richie and Mike are the only ones who have, like, both parents well-adjusted.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And... The parent stuff plays into the cycles as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is, it happens. Bev's dad is super abusive. And then she basically marries a man who's exactly like her dad, having kind of forgotten about the abuse. Was that yeah, part of what she forgot? Like I yes, feel like it was. I think so, yeah. And she sort of falls right back into the same role. Whereas Eddie, I don't think he forgets about his mom... 'Cause he knows when he marries his wife that he's marrying his mother. Yes. And he goes through with it anyway, but he's like the whole time is arguing arguing with himself. I shouldn't do this. This is kinda of messed up. But he still marries her. So They did that. <laughs> something interesting
0: with that in the new movies, which is they have the same actors play his mom and his wife. See, I didn't
1: notice that. That's it's, re- Fine.
0: it's really subtle, I think, because they made her up like super differently and mm-hmm. her hair is very different. But I thought it was interesting that they did that all the same. Yeah, I do want to talk about Eddie a little bit. Let's talk about Eddie. He's one of my other favorite characters. I mean, Ben and Stan are, I think, my top two favorites. I thought it was interesting that the new movies kind of gave Eddie a little more agency and made him I don't know... He's more of, like, a little shit in the new movies. Whereas in the books, he's kind of, like, very passive. And I thought that that was an interesting change that they made. Interesting take. I didn't really perceive that. I
1: also watched the movies first. And so I've been tainted.
0: (laughs) I feel like in the book, he's slightly more passive, but you can argue about that with me because clearly you've read the book more recently than I did.
1: Well not recently enough. Cause they made a whole scene in the movie in the chapter one where like they all go to the drugstore together and like get medical supplies yes. and like Eddie is very like self sufficiently being cared for. But he does have a moment in the book where he confronts his mother in a really satisfying way that we do not get in the movies, I don't think.
0: I don't remember it. He confronts her in the movie, but it's, like, a very short scene and it's not that satisfying.
1: The problem is because the book is so powerful in the language and in the internal world and not necessarily, like, actions and words that are spoken that the scene where Eddie confronts his mother as a child is so much better in the
0: book. (laughs) Yeah, I know people shit on Stephen King's writing a lot, but like he really nails it sometimes in this book.
1: He like, he does some weird stuff that I would truly never do myself, but like within certain (laughs) 20 page sections of the book, like, I don't know, like taken alone the writing is like gorgeous. It's so effective. Taken as a 1000 page monstrosity, it's like Okay, now there's Space Turtles. I mean, he was absolutely
0: still doing cocaine when he wrote this book.
1: Yes. So, but, like, the the writing itself is extremely effective. It's, I don't know, like, you can learn a lot from this book if you're a writer.
0: Yeah, there's a reason he's a best-selling author. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, we've established that Stephen King is good. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the scene with, with Eddie confronting his mother is he's just broken his arm because henry bowers broke it for him um (laughs) uh his mom comes to see him in the hospital and he either has a vision that's mystical in origin or he actually is able to see it i was listening to the audiobook and spaced out sometimes but either vision or in real life, he sees his mother send his friends away and, like, yell at them, like, You get away from my, Eddie! You're the reason he broke his arm! He would never be outside playing if not for having friends. He doesn't need friends, he needs his mom! And sends the kids away from the hospital. And then she comes in to visit Eddie, and Eddie's like, You sent my friends away, Mom. <gasps> yeah, I remember that. That's a really good scene. It's real. It's a really long scene, and it's just like this drawn out back and forth between him and his mom. And his mom is this like master manipulator. Who's like, you're tired, Eddie. Don't even think about it right now. Like, and he keeps pushing and pushing until she bursts out in fake tears. And it's like, you don't even love me. Like it's, yeah, it's a good representation of that kind of person. It's, It's a kind of parental abuse. Yeah. Very distinct from Bev's and her dad's, but like, definitely still represented in the novel here.
0: Yeah, and I feel like in the new movie they kind of gave him a little bit of Richie's personality, because like, in the books, Richie is very much like the designated like, extrovert, and he's like the funny one, and he like, makes all of the jokes. And I feel like for the movies, they were like, well, we kind of need another, like, funny, fast-talking character who can, like, play off of Richie Moore. And I don't know if it was so much the writers as, like, the child actor that they got also. I don't know. I think
1: I think that the, the Eddie's
0: child actor did a really great job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like,
1: of all of them, like... He's the one who I pictured while I was reading the book. Or is like, okay, that was a really great performance and I'm keeping him as Eddie. The rest of them, I think I probably kept Bev because it was just like, you're a redhead. Um, (laughs) But I definitely
0: didn't keep Finn Wolfhard. (laughs) I will go down on the ship that the 90s miniseries casting baby Seth Green as... Kid Richie was the best decision they made for that miniseries. Is that
1: really who that was? Uh-huh. Wow!
0: It was like Seth Green's first role in anything. I'm pretty sure besides like mm-hmm. toy commercials. Yeah, yeah, I
1: see. Finn Wolfhard kind of played it like um that character in Stand By Me who looks like Finn Wolfhard, and that that kid was like not really Richie Tozier. That kid like. Well, very violent. It's been a while since I've seen, I've seen that movie. But, like... I, I, R- Richie in, in, in Chapter 1 was very much like, I'm gonna punch your lights out. I'm insane. I'm about to start <laughs> fighting people. Instead of, like, Richie in the books, which is just, like, racist. And so... <laughs> there's... And I understand why they didn't want to make, like, their funny character super racist. Because yeah. feel- uh, that's, like... It's not fair for viewers yes really not (laughs)
0: correct (laughs) i feel like yeah they didn't make him obnoxious enough in the movie because i feel like they were afraid to go there and like make a really obnoxious character who people actively dislike
1: i don't know it's it's a tough sell to have that be present i don't know it's a it's a valid character choice but it's definitely hard to make that choice and also have like your 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 darling little child actors do it, and everyone's supposed to love them all. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't know. In 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 a book, you can have a little more wiggle room to be like complicated. Um, but in a movie, it's like we
0: gotta sell these tickets, boss. So yeah, I feel like the movies were too afraid to have Richie be like an asshole. Like there's that scene where. They're in the movie theater and he sees Henry Bowers, like, below them because they're, like, on the balcony. And he's like, I'm gonna pour this whole coke onto Henry Bowers' head. And all of the other losers are like, Richie, seriously, do not fucking do that. And he does it. And they're like, Why would you do that, man? <laughs> and they didn't keep that in the new movie, which I feel like was a mistake because it's, like, one of the funniest scenes in the book. And it's in the miniseries. But yeah, Richie is just, like, that one horrible friend that we've all had who who is like haha I can't believe you guys dared me to do this <laughs> <laughs> and then, like does something just like irrevocably stupid and has to go to the hospital yeah <laughs> and the new
1: movie they just like made him too cool Yeah, it's true. He was more of, like, a smooth talker than, like, a completely out-of-control child.
0: The one thing they got right is the the scene with the parade where he, like, steals a tuba from the marching band, and you see him, like, in the background with the tuba. I have no memory of that. It's, (laughs) It's like, a split-second scene because, like, the (laughs) other kids are talking, and then you see him... Like, he has taken a tuba from one of the marching band people, and they're, like, following him around, trying to get it back, as he's, as he's like, walking around badly playing the tuba in the parade. <laughs> it's just, like, a background gag. I'm gonna say right now, that
1: from what we've covered in It, it might as well not be a supernatural novel. <laughs> we've talked about someone rips Georgie's arm off in a drain...
0: And these kids are friends. (laughs) It is a coming of age story. It is. It's just to stand by me, but there's a clown. Yeah. It it's just stand by me, but there's an evil clown. Which, by the way, it isn't a clown that much in the book. (laughs) Counter. That's
1: right, this is an argument podcast now. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Um, in all of the historical interludes, it always shows oh, up. Oh, that's a clown. fair.
0: Yeah, because it's
1: yeah. Because so my favorite part of the book is the interludes, because it's basically like someone is like telling you an an oral history, like a story like that. Yeah. And that just it draws you in so much. Where it's like it's Mike's journal and he's like, I went and I interviewed this old man in town and he told me to talk to this other old man in town because he doesn't want to talk about the shitty things he's done and I learned about Bonnie and Clyde XB that our town murdered in cold blood instead of calling the cops because they were, like, really excited
0: to murder people.
1: (laughs) And then the the next interlude, it'll be the one about the black spot. Um, And there was another one. And, I mean, there's five in all. I don't remember what they are all about. uh, But they're all these very interesting stories of, like, Mike hunting down these stories as... A librarian and putting it together, and um, like as he's interviewing the these people, he talks to. I th- I think he might ask, was like there any stranger there that you didn't recognize from in town? And the old man will always be like, yeah, I think the it was the summer, so maybe the carnival was in town, and there was this clown there with like a with, like a big old gun, just shooting everything with us, and like and Mike's, like keeping a straight face, like cool. Thank you for your time. <laughs> so yes it is a clown in the in like the interludes like when they're talking about like the 1890s and then 10 years 20 um, years later and 20 years later there oh one of them was um the logging town Derry used to be like a logging outpost that was like i think the earliest one and i don't know it was a boring one but
0: (laughs) they're all they're all good But I feel like we as a society have massively overstated the point to which it appears to the children as a clown. That's true. I think the
1: clown was used for those interludes as a symbol, like from from like a writer meta perspective, Mm -hmm. like, okay, for Mike to be sure about this, it has to be something so out of place and something so consistent that a clown
0: is perfect for that. (laughs) And so that's what they used. Because, I mean, it appears a couple times as a clown. Like, it definitely... Appears to Georgie. It appears to Georgie as a clown. It appears... It appears to, um, Adrian as a clown.
1: Yeah. And so, I feel like those are the first two instances of It, and so then it all just kind of snowballs around that. It's the first impression we have of it is the clown. Right. Two times in a row.
0: And also, I feel like, kind of, people in the film industry and in, like, the TV industry when they were making the miniseries, were, like, we want it to be a marketable horror movie and to do that we need, like, one villain with an image that we can promote mm-hmm. to, like, sell this. And they were, like, spooky clown. It's a lot scarier uh-huh. than, like, tentacled
1: spider monster that lives in the sewers. Correct. Which is just... I've got complaints about the spiders. Yeah, I just, I don't think that they're that scary. They're kind of a shorthand for scariness, Uh, which you could argue is like the point, because it itself is a shorthand for scariness. Yeah. But, But I don't know, in horror, I don't typically
0: vibe with spiders. I think that's fair. I feel like maybe one of the reasons Stephen King wanted it to be a spider was so he could imply that. It has, like, eggs and... It's text. Yeah. It's there. Uh, Ben steps on
1: all the eggs.
0: Yeah, and that, like, some aspect of it might have survived. Mm -hmm. Because there's, like, in Stephen King books that take place after it, there's, like, a lot of implications that at least some part of it has survived. And it's, like, still around. But it's never confirmed. It's always, like, very small, vague references or, like, subtext. Mm Mm-hmm. And Stephen King's never actually done anything else with the the characters of it except in eleven twenty two sixty three, Bev and Richie show up as teenagers for like one chapter. That's fun. It is fun. the The protagonist like is in Derry. He like time travels uh, and is in Derry to like do something else, and he meets Bev and Richie and like talks to them for like two pages. And is like, well, those were sure some teenagers I talked to. <laughs> But it's, like, after it takes place and they're, like, already losing their memories of what happened. So they're just, like, normal teenagers hanging out. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the turtle?
1: I like that we've kind of structured this podcast the same way as it. Where, like, the turtle gets mentioned in the beginning. Like, before Stan even commits um. bath time. Sorry, I knew that would get you. Um, Marty's laughing off mic. She looks very mad at me. Um, so, Stan uh, thinks to himself as an adult, uh, the turtle couldn't even uh, help us with this or something like that. Um, and, and then it's like never mentioned again, like, uh, the turtle? Like, excuse me? And then someone else will think like, oh yeah, the turtle said something about that. And then you move on again, and that's exactly what we've done here today, folks. <laughs> so, um, let's talk about the turtle. I think Marnie it needs to monologue about the turtle, because I don't have the Stephen King background to talk about the turtle.
0: So, here's the thing about the turtle. The turtle is a concept that is both wholly unique to the book It, but it is also not, because it's implied to exist in kind of, like, the larger mythos of the Stephen King universe, as is it, kind of. But um, the turtle is like Pennywise's cosmic archenemy, and it is a giant turtle that created the world, <laughs> essentially. But it's like on the side of good, and it's like a a cosmic spirit that is a force for good, just like how it is like this alien that is a force for evil, and the turtle helps the tiny children do this ritual to kill it, which is very cool. And I'm very mad that it has never been in any film adaptation of it because it is by far one of the cooler things in the book that happens. But I also kind of get that there's no good way to adapt it to film.
1: Yeah, it was very metaphorical, I guess. And like you kind of had to be uh, told what was happening in narration to really get it? I actually didn't understand it that well while I was reading slash listening to the audiobook while doing something else. Which is, a, it's a tough way to engage in media, gotta
0: say. They like go to a weird cosmic dream realm.
1: Right! And I did why don't you continue to summarize the ending of it for um, me?
0: So in the movie, they made the ritual like a thing, but it's just like we have to find tokens of our childhood. No, that and, was like, that was dumb. And like burn them in a fire, which is like something that they made up for the movie, so that they don't have to explain the real ritual, which is Bill and it create this like psychic deadlock between the two of them, and like it's. In kind of all of the stuff around the ritual, it's symbolized by them biting each other's tongues, and they just basically go at it psychically until one of them, like, is forced to let go. I think, like, the the literal way it's described is that, like, you bite each other's tongues and tell each other jokes until one of you laughs. And it's just, like, this weird mind ritual that happens. And there's just, like, no way to film it is the problem that I think so many of the uh, the people who have tried to adapt this for film have run into.
1: But that's only when they're adults. I don't think they do it when they're kids.
0: They don't do it when they're kids.
1: But, like, the turtle tells them that they should, and they're like, I think we've done enough killing it. Surely he will simply (laughs) die.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, so the turtle is, like, He's on their side. He's a good guy, but he's also, like...
1: He sort of compels them. Yes. Like, like, Bill is kind of the turtle elected leader, and so, like, Bill is just, like, compelled to do things in a kind of creepy way, where he's just like, I just know that I should do this, Mm -hmm. and I should tell them, what this is our plan.
0: The turtle is also kind of fucked up because it's implied that he created the universe by accident. (laughs) It's fun. (laughs) I don't think it's actually implied. I think he just says that. He's like, yeah, I created the Earth and it was an accident. Sorry. But the turtle is also implied to fit into the Stephen King cinematic universe, as it were, in that he is implied to be one of, like, the beam guardians from the Dark Tower. So the Dark Tower, people who are reading this who don't know what the Dark Tower is, is this, like, epic sci-fi fantasy series Stephen King is written you don't need to know anything about it except that there is a dark tower that stands at the center of all all the universes and there are beams that go out from the tower that stabilize both the tower and the multiverse um, and each beam is has an animal guardian and so the turtle is heavily implied to be one of those and the losers club is heavily implied to fit in as kind of... The Dark Tower establishes these things called cotets, which are basically found families, um, and there are very specific roles in in the quartet, and the Losers Club is kind of implied to be one, and that's that on that. <laughs>
1: yeah, But it's interesting that they break up at the end. Yes. I don't know that they showed that in the most recent movie. Like, they kind of showed them all going, their separate ways but not the permanence of it and um, that was a really good part of the book
0: they show ben and bev on a yacht <laughs> F-
1: no but like <laughs> so the ending of the book mike was the i forget the word they use for it but he's kind of like the watchtower he's like yeah he's at the middle of everything he remembers when they leave and forget but with it like
0: it's the dark tower
1: ha ha you're very frick. funny <laughs> Um,
0: i'm writing Stephen king's books for him
1: now (laughs) you sure are lying on the floor doing that (laughs) um so mike mike was the one who called them all back because if you stay in dairy you remember and if you leave you forget But at the end, after they defeat it, even while they're all still in Derry, they start forgetting things. And even, like, the writing in Mike's address book fades extremely quickly. So he cannot save their names and addresses in order to ever contact them again. And so he's becoming aware of this. And, like, meanwhile, like, half of them have left town. Bill is staying behind with his wife, Audra. That's something to get into or not. (laughs) And so it's, it's Bill, Audra, and Mike are the last people in town. And, um, like Mike calls Richie on the phone and is like, Hey, I'm kind of forgetting things. Are you forgetting things? And Richie's like, I guess, yeah, I sure am. <laughs> uh- <laughs> and, and Mike's like, Can you remember Stan's last name? And Richie can't. And, um, uh, Mike has to tell him because it's still written down, but, Like, it's fading, and he knows that either he has to copy it out, like, every week to keep it from, like, being magically faded away, or it's gonna be gone forever. And, even if he keeps doing that, he knows he's gonna forget the significance of why he must copy it out and who these people are anyway. And it is so haunting. Just, like, the total dissipation of the seven of them. Well, six. Because yeah. dead at that point.
0: I feel like the new movies don't do that at all and the the miniseries definitely implies that that's what's going to happen but they don't take it that step farther. Like the miniseries ends with all of them leaving town and it super implies that they're going to lose their memory but the new movie ends like happy ending. Ben and yeah. Beverly are on a yacht being heterosexual. God they sure are. That's all I remember. <laughs> Yeah. And what we're not oh, going to talk about. What?
1: We're not going to talk about Richie.
0: Oh, are we not going to talk about Richie? I'm excited. I, I, thought, I thought we were going to talk about Stan's uh, bath time letter that does not appear in the book. What? In the movie, he writes them a letter that explains his suicide as like, oh my God. he was like, I knew that if I came back to Derry, it was gonna get me first, and I was too weak to fight it, so I'm taking myself off the board, and this is a strategic decision that I'm making, where it's like, it weirdly tries to make his suicide into, like, actually, Stan was playing four-dimensional chess the whole time. (laughs) When, no... And it just feels very like we have to tie this up in a happy ending and also actually Stan dying was a good thing. The end. Yeah.
1: Stan and Mike both kind of get taken out of the book as major players. Like Mike is obviously very present in the intermissions, which are totally absent for many movies. But yeah, Stan is, just because he dies as an adult, it's like his child perspective kind of dies with him. Like, I don't really remember more than one or maybe two Stan perspective child things. Mm -hmm.
0: And you have to wait a long time before you get Stan's point of view.
1: It's it's kind of like dying as an adult kills him as a kid, too. He, like, exists in the memory of his friends.
0: I, yeah, I was, I was thinking that because I know we were talking about this yesterday, I think. I think that it's kind of an interesting way to do it where, like, the fact that he dies extremely early in the book, like, it's one of the first couple things that happens in the book, it forces you to reckon with the fact that here is a character that you don't necessarily care about right away mm-hmm. who has died and then you experience him through all of his friends' very fond memories of him. And you retroactively start caring about the fact that you experienced him dying very early on in the book. Yeah. And it makes, and I feel like it makes his absence very, very pronounced towards the end.
1: No, it's true. It, it, it adds a lot to the sort of tension of the final showdown because you've been led to believe that like seven was the perfect number to do this and not only are you no longer seven kids but you no longer have childlike belief in your aspirator to become battery acid so you're definitely gonna fail and i mean plus at that point in the book like mike gets written out of the ending yeah because he's kind of taken off the table by an enemy player, Marty
0: wants to say something. And also with the Stan thing, you're following. You like you're in the same brain space as the other adults because they don't know that Stan exists. And so from their perspective, it's like, this guy died. Who I w- went to high school with. Why should I care? And then mm. as they're remembering, they're like, Oh fuck, Stan, my friend, yeah. who I care very deeply about, is dead. That sucks and it is hard to pull that
1: off in a yeah. piece of writing like the very fine adjustments that are being made of course it takes a thousand pages i yeah. mean
0: you could have spared me the 20 about the the dinosaurs that would have been fine but of course it takes 900 pages i hope this is a good uh biannual audio experience with us like moving all around, rolling on the floor as we're talking. I imagine Marty sounds sometimes very distant as she goes and lies on her back over there. <laughs> I think about that tweet all the time that's like, I don't listen to podcasts anymore unless they're about an extremely specific niche subject and they sound like they were recorded on an old boot. like something like that. I think about that all the time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah. What else do we have to say about Stephen King's It?
1: Oh, God, I have uh-huh. one more thing that I wanted to talk about. Uh-huh. But we should have talked about it in the middle so that we could have like built up to it and then had sort of a cool down time <laughs> building away from it. Oh, but that's not how it happens in the book, is it?
0: <sighs> Alright. I mean we could also talk about how Richie is is gay in the movie. <laughs> let's All right. Let's start with
1: the upsetting thing and then wait, they're both upsetting. Okay. Let's let's start with
0: Child Sex. So, yeah. So there's a very famous scene that happens in this book that people generally dismiss as Stephen King being on a lot of cocaine when he wrote this book, which I'm sure is true. Where all of the children have sex in the sewer.
1: Yes. And I don't think it was a completely random scene. I think it's really uncomfortable to talk about. That's for sure. Like It makes you feel uncomfortable while you're reading it. But I know why it was there. So it's from Bev's perspective. And it's not out of control and it's not an orgy they don't have sex with each other they take turns having Having sex sex one-on-one with bev her point behind it being she has a belief in the power of sex as a concept that has been drilled into her by her abusive father who is like just so afraid of her having sex that she begins to see it as this like extremely terrifying and powerful yeah. thing at her disposal. And like, it's not really on her mind growing up. He's the one who's sexualizing all of her interactions with her friends who are boys. And his fear of it kind of empowers it to her mm-hmm. where at a low point as they're trying to escape from, from these tunnels under the city and it's dark and they've killed it or so they think they their kids at the time it's like they need one more weapon like they've used eddie's aspirator and believed it was battery acid bev is like i have a thing that i believe in the power of and it's also called it it's called doing it and that's kind of where it stems from because of bev's background being abused and Having this sort of pressure of womanhood forced upon her, even though she's little. And it works as if it's a toy, basically, as if it's an aspirator with battery acid, because they are kids and they're just kind of like playing in the space.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's uncomfortable to read. It really is. But it kind of is pretty uncomfortable to be Bev. As a super abused kid who is sexualized by her dad, if not sexually assaulted i don't think that happens she's like beaten yeah her mom is afraid that she will be yes her
0: mom is afraid that her dad is like gonna go over the top at some point
1: yeah and i just i felt that it made a lot of sense in the book yeah
0: her mom is dead in the in the new movies huh which is a weird choice that they made it's like just her and her dad (laughs) yeah I mean, she might as well be in the books
1: for all the good she does. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I'm, obviously I haven't read it as recently. I remember the last time I read it, I was not looking forward to that scene. And I was like, this kind of sucks, but it's not as bad as I remember. And like, it still makes more or less sense in context. It's just, like, a weird thing to for a grown man to include in his book. No, I'm with you there, because,
1: like, even if you're kind of using that to make a point about Bev and how her belief, like, just as a girl is so much, so much different from the very, like, innocent and childlike beliefs of her male friends. Like, unfortunately, she can't believe in the aspirator she has to believe in sex, because... Like sex for you, you're 11 and a girl, and you can't be allowed to have a childhood. Like, even if you understand it as important, Stephen King really <laughs> describes too much, and he should have not done that.
0: No, yeah, and I and
1: I feel like <laughs> and I it was the wrong move.
0: Yes, and I feel like young adult writing Twitter has this discussion every week where it's like teens are allowed to have sex in your young adult book. They're, like, teen... That's fine. Whatever. But don't go into... Don't zoom in! Yeah, don't zoom in. Like, just put in a jump cut. Just hit him with the jump cut. Or, like, change the chapter, or be like, and then they had sex, or whatever. And don't, like, go into graphic detail.
1: And you can, like, you can include important character details without being graphic. Stephen King did not do that. No, he
0: didn't. He didn't
1: do that. Like, you can include that, like, the one of the kids is a little more grown up and actually understands what's happening, where the others, it's more, like, play acting. And, like, you can just say that in plain words without having, like, sensual imagery going along with it. And you probably should... You can even have Bev reflect on how she felt about the
0: experience, but zoom out. How did he convince his editor to let him leave this in the book? Twas
1: the 80s. I guess. I don't know. I guess. Oh man, speaking of the world of writing, this is something that doesn't matter very much in the grand scheme of the book, but that I thought was very funny. And how... Bill is kind of a Stephen King self-insert character. Yeah, I mean,
0: he's he, he always gets one. <laughs> Gotta
1: get one in there. Uh, <laughs> um, but just like the Bill thinking about being in college and how his writing professor didn't understand him and gave him Ds because he wasn't trying to write like Philip Roth. He was trying to write genre fiction. <laughs> and he's like... Why can't a story just be a story? Why does it have to mean anything? And his professor was like, Oh my god, please stop. (laughs) Anyway, I just thought that was very good. And that's true. That happens when you take a writing class in college.
0: Don't do it. Stephen King can have a little self-insert.
1: He can have a little self-insert. He can just be still mad at his writing professor from
0: college and just write him in. (laughs) It's fine. (sighs) In conversation with the sex scene, I really like the one scene in the book where they are all in the underground hideout and all of them take turns saying, I love you to Bev.
1: Yeah. That scene is very sweet. sweet.
0: It was just sweet. I don't have anything else to say about it. I just think it's a very sweet scene. Mm -hmm. And um, it's nice. I feel very strongly about just, like, the general sense of loving your friends that happens in this book and the way that they somehow managed to completely eradicate it from the new movies in favor of making them, like, commercial horror movies. Yeah. The 90s miniseries got a lot more into that kind of general tone of, like, nostalgia and loving your friends and kind of like having a, a an identity as a as a group of friends um and had more time to play in that space whereas the new movies kind of focused more on the s- ah, scary monster I mean we've hardly even talked about the
1: scares we haven't talked about how it manifests itself to each of them the first time or how they become increasingly threatened. We haven't talked about The House on Nebel Street.
0: That's true. This, that... is a, this is a horror book club podcast. We're, try- but we're it's... supposed to discuss what makes effective horror. But we did talk about horror. We talked about generational trauma. Yes. For like I... an hour and a half. <laughs> I mean,
1: my point here is that like, the most interesting parts of this book are not commercial horror friendly. Yes. Like the parts of it that stick with you aren't. I will say that the best idea about horror, in my opinion, in it, is something from Ben's perspective as an adult, where he's thinking back about being a child and how he just had no concept of like mortal peril as a kid. Yeah. Like so so he has this sort of like soliloquy in his in his head, Adult Ben, where he's like, Oh my god, as kids we would just run in traffic and it was just like we just believed we'd be fine. And that's true a lot with Bill, too, and um Silver, his bicycle, where he just, like, rides through stop signs and, like, guess we'll see if I die or not. Except for Stan. Stan is the only one who gets it. Yeah, he's the only one who doesn't have Stan, that sort of childlike... Stan, Stan
0: is the only one who has a sense of mortality because all Jewish children innately have a sense of mort- of their own mortality. Yeah. That's what I believe I love it. to be true. <laughs> I love it. At that point. But what else was in
1: that, in that Ben section? Or it was like, you can get used to anything if you're a kid. Yeah. Like, anything can become completely normal to you. Like, uh, Like, just awful, awful stuff. But once you grow up, it's like, you can't deal with fear anymore because you just, exactly, you have this awareness of mortality now. And it's like, oh my god, I could die if I do this. Like, I can't do what I did as a kid. And I am way more afraid of everything. Which is kind of an interesting twist, because you really think of, like, kids are the ones who are afraid of things. Yeah. They're afraid of werewolves and whatever. But, you know, Ben kind of has this opposite perspective, almost, like, metatextually looking down yeah. in his life on horror writing.
0: Well, and, and it, they make the point in the book that, like, it specifically appears to children because they're afraid of, like, monsters and spiders and clowns. But it has a hard time appearing to adults because they're afraid of, like, abstract concepts. Yeah. Like, dying. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Ha- not having any friends. <laughs> 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 like, <laughs> being publicly embarrassed. It's true. And, like, what if I get fired from my job? <laughs> and... Health insurance.
1: <laughs> Something else that's, like, more... How it, the book, is scary and the movies really can't be is this sort of, like, dramatic irony of, like, you get a scene from one character who you've never met before. Some kid. It's not it's not Eddie Krasbrack. It's a different Eddie. There's two Eddies in that book. Isn't it awful? Yeah. There's another Eddie. He's, like, not a main character.
0: Oh, yeah, like, Eddie Corcoran or whatever his name is.
1: Yeah, and he's, like... He runs away from home because his dad's abusive and already killed his little brother. It's like a huge section. The dad section. thing
0: again. More
1: dads. There's this huge section of the book that's about this family and they're more or less irrelevant except for this point where they yeah. connect. It's like a thread that's connecting them to the story where Eddie, um, what was his last name? Corcoran? Eddie Corcoran runs away from home. He's like running through the park and um, it comes out of the canal and chases him and he like trips over a bench and the the bench goes like upside down and he like drops his pocket knife and it gets embedded in the mud somehow. And he runs and runs and he gets killed and eaten by it. And then I don't know if it's an exact cut at that point or if there's stuff in between, but at some point we get into Mike's perspective and he's walking by the canal and he sees a pocket knife and he's like, cool pocket knife ec you wonder who that is and like yeah. kind of walking through and like there's a bench that's overturned and he sees blood and it's kind of this like chilling something happened here but mike isn't really allowing himself to be fully aware of what that was and it's just like i'm gonna keep this inside and internalize it and do something else and that is effective horror it's hard to do in a movie because you cannot take 30 minutes to talk about Eddie Corcoran's whole family.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is just one of those books that they, you just can't adapt to the screen very well, unless you were to make like a four season television show. And even then, I think you would lose some of the nuance. No, I mean, you have to read this
1: book in a week because otherwise... You lose the thread, and you have no idea who these people are anymore.
0: Yeah, I think And you have to, like, you have to have the book, the book, not a movie. I think the first time I read it, I read it over the course of, like, an entire summer, and I did, like, a chapter a day, and I kept losing the thread of, like, who each character- like, who all of, like, the minor characters were, and, like, what was happening. Um, and then- The second time I read it, I read it in like a week, and yeah, and it was like a way better reading experience.
1: If you have some sort of project that you're doing, audiobook, yeah, I knocked it out in about a week. Fifty hour audiobook knocked it out in a week because I was doing sewing, and it's like a good audiobook too, right? Driving, um, I liked it. Yeah,
0: I know that it's good some parts of it have become like a TikTok meme <laughs> with like it cosplayers on TikTok.
1: That's funny. No, I, it is hard to find an audiobook that is read by a man where the women's voices are like tolerable. And this one is. I really like how he does Bev, child Bev, and adult Bev. Nice. Yeah, it's not super infantilizing. So there's something. Do we want to talk about Richie? <laughs> I mean we put it off long enough. It's a it's a fun note to go out on. Let's talk about Richie.
0: So we did say before that they they tried to make the quote unquote gay subtext in 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 the book into I guess text in the movie, and it's still really subtextual and well, okay, it's not subtextual. It is definitely text, like it's there, but in the least
1: intrusive
0: way yeah. possible. In such a way that they can they can say, yes, definitely Richie is gay, but in such a way that it does not have any significant impact on like the story or his character, and they they just basically added like a couple scenes so they can be like, It's gay, he's gay. I read in the original script for It Part 2, it says a slur at Richie. <laughs> and that's how they were, um, gonna establish that, uh, that he is gay. Wow. I mean,
1: you're gonna cut all the slurs from the book, but you're gonna add this one back in? <laughs> what if,
0: just a, just a hypothetical question, what if a fucked up clown said a slur at you? Shh. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like, if I were going to adapt it to film, number one, I wouldn't. <laughs> number two, <laughs> RIP R- R- to Andy Mizzuchetti, I simply would not. <laughs> Turn it down. Close your email. Exit out. Sign out. Throw your computer out the window. <laughs> Stop being a director to change careers. <laughs> I think Richie was a fine choice to make one of them gay. Yeah. I think if you're going to do it, that's the least intrusive to the storylines that exist. Bill's relationship with Audra, which they also cut from the Most recent movie, was important. Bev and Tom is plot important. Eddie and his wife are plot important. I think they also
0: maybe cut her... I don't know. No, she's in the movie. Oh,
1: she's in it for like one minute. She just Um, like yells at him one time. (laughs) Yes.
0: And I agree with a lot of queer fans of it that it is possible to read Eddie as a closeted gay man. And I think that is a completely valid reading. Richie or Eddie? Eddie. I think you can read him as, as closeted. Okay. And... He is very, very queer coded in the nineties miniseries. Eddie is. Yeah, we gotta watch it again. It's been a really long time. I remember him.
1: Is he blonde? And yes, just
0: adorable. He's in the, <laughs> as an adult. He's very like blonde and effeminate, and hmm. he is very queer coded. Interesting. Um, and I feel like the the writers and directors and whatever of the current movie might have wanted to move away from that because they were like. Oh, we don't want, like, the quote-unquote, like, weak, sickly character mm-hmm. to also, like, have the closeted gay storyline, yeah. which I get. But, I mean, in the, in the book, as...
1: I don't know how much subtext I even really saw. Like, there was some stuff that I just found, like, straight-up adorable. Like, every time that Richie calls Eddie cute, I was like, that's adorable. I wish that people still did that with their <laughs> friends. <laughs> and Eddie, of course, is just like, please don't.
0: Anyway, um, Richie is also the only one who doesn't, like, get married or, Mm -hmm. like, have... Well, Ben and Mike. But Richie is the only one who, like, doesn't really have any romantic interest in anyone, really. He has some stuff in his backstory
1: where he has girlfriends. He has one girlfriend who she's like, it's a bad thing to bring children into this world as, like, an activism sort of thing. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm going to get a vasectomy. And, like, she dumps him at some point. And uh, when he finds out, trying to get his vasectomy reversed, that it, like, literally never took and he never had one, he calls her up and is like, you didn't happen to get, like, pregnant ten years ago? <laughs> and she, like, laughs in his face and is like, I'm literally pregnant right now and happily married and, and then, of course, it's just like, but you had this whole activism thing about bringing children into the world. And she's like, no, you just would have been a bad dad. Like, the problem was you. Goodbye. Well <laughs> no, no, he, like, does have that, but that doesn't preclude him
0: being gay. He still yeah. can. But you still can. Yeah. But, like, anyway, Richie is the only one who doesn't kind of, like, end up in a mm-hmm. more or less stable relationship. Like, even... Like, Ben is single as an adult, yeah. but, like, he ends up with Bev. Even Stan is, like, married and, like, has a wife. Good for him.
1: Mm-hmm. For a while.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> but they are established to be very happily married before he um, dies. They do so um, puzzles. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Richie, I mean, he he's just a good choice if you're gonna adapt it, because, like...
0: He just is. Yeah. He
1: just is. If you want to make him queer,
0: do it. But I think if you make Richie queer, you then have to at least have him acknowledge the homophobic violence thing that happens immediately precluding the losers arriving in Derry. Like, yeah. I don't know. If you want to add to his storyline, don't just like add a couple things where like, he might have had a crush on someone and like got bullied for it and then like established that he was probably in love with Eddie like
1: it makes it makes the like the the queerness, the gayness like an internal problem yeah, instead of an external problem which is an insane thing to do when literally the inciting incident of the 1980s yeah. portion is homophobic violence yeah and you just like pretend that this character who's also in the 80s I mean that they move it up they shouldn't move it yeah up. they move yes. it up Correct. to the present day but they still have the homophobic violence in the present day which is like fine also accurate yeah <laughs> no these change um but you you can't just like pretend that it's like It's a personal problem with old Richie that he's
0: like, it's not. And I think it would be more interesting to have him kind of reckon with like having to come back to his hometown where he knows that like this homophobic violence just happened and like having that kind of storyline for him rather than like if you're gonna make him explicitly gay, having him just kind of go through the motions of the book storyline, but also like. Add in a couple, like, references to the fact that he is gay. Yeah, it's...
1: Like, because it is so tied up in, like, violence against marginalized people and just, like, the act of marginalizing someone. Yeah. <laughs> oppression. Like, Stephen King himself could have gone farther. Yeah. He, like, he teased it a little bit. He was so willing to talk about racism. But when it came to, like, the the section in the 80s where what he kind of really wanted to get into the meat of was homophobia. He kind of didn't go all the way. He goes back in time and looks at Henry and Patrick and how they're extremely homophobic. They're throwing slurs all over the place and, you know, targeting the losers just because they've decided that they're gay, even if they aren't. But like in in the 80s portion, you have the one Inciting Incident with Adrian and Don. And then it kind of dissipates into general evilness. Like, it starts targeting the the losers, yeah. specifically. And it kind of loses the focus of, like, we. Re- it reflects society. And so I feel like making one or even more than one of them queer would have kind of refocused yeah. us in on what Stephen King kind of set out to talk about in chapter two.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I kind of get the feeling that Stephen King might not have like had the range or the like no, really the vocabulary to just, like express something like that. Like that might've been too big of an idea for him. No, um,
1: no, I agree. He really tried his best. Like, I feel like he saw something in the world that was wrong and was like, god our in society is so insidious like we don't even care that we're evil we just are and he just wasn't quite ready to make himself vulnerable to all the homophobia that would have fallen upon his head he would have been stopped. they would have They would have killed Stephen King he never would have gotten another book I, I don't know why I'm complaining the poor man protected himself he, he
0: would have been too woke for the 19th century
1: they would have killed him We would have found him in the standpipe. (laughs) The CIA would have taken him out. (laughs) Get out of here. Ronald Reagan himself would have pulled a gun and (laughs) be like, alright, king, let's tone back the being gay
0: of Richie. (laughs) That was... That was like actually why he was hit by a car in the 90s. Oh my god. Stop. (laughs) I mean, that's the Dark Tower. The Dark Tower books literally go into like Stephen King was hit by a car because like agents from the multiverse are trying to kill him because his ideas are too good.
1: (laughs) Okay. That's a lot.
0: The characters from the Dark Tower have to go into the real world and Sam Stephen King bring in my car.
1: <laughs> I wish I was that brave. <laughs> I No, I aspire to that in my writing.
0: We're, I'm going there next time. <laughs> my dude has a lot of trauma from being hit by a car, which is completely understandable. It is. Anyway, I think that if you want to... Bring it into a more modern adaptation, like have Richie be textually gay. One of the easiest ways you can fucking do that is have him meet Don. It's true. <laughs> They're, like... yeah, <laughs> Yep. yep. <laughs> They're both gay. They've both had experiences with it.
1: You know, that would be uh. such a great parallel to Bill meeting the kid who reminds him of himself. Because... Bill meets this kid who's playing in a skateboard in the street. Oh, yeah. And he kind of, like, remembers that, like, <clears throat> oh, man, like, when I was a kid, I would do all kinds of dangerous stuff on my bike, and, like, as an adult looking at this kid, I'm really, like, worried about him on the yeah. skateboard. And then it's, like, you can't ride those things if you're afraid. And so sort of, it
0: becomes, even, like, a comment on fear. They even kept that in the movie. Like, Bill meets a kid and, like, screams at him. Uh, but,
1: like... I don't like how the movie kind of made it like a horror movie slasher scene where that kid died because I think that the fear of repeating the past is more effective than actually doing it, especially in the middle of the movie when it's not the climactic moment. We still have miles to go before we sleep here. And it's, like, a kid is murdered, and Bill's like, Ah, oh, my avatar for myself! And then he has to stop that immediately, because he has shit to do. So he's like, all right, I watched a child die. What's next on the agenda? Fjolks? Like? <laughs> yeah, he, like, turns up at the, at the, like, bed and breakfast or whatever it is, and he's, like, fine. Yeah, yeah. so, uh-huh. like... Kid was pretty important to the book and just like kind of builds reflections on him as like a foil. And I feel like you oh. could have done something similar like that with Richie and Don, who's like still in town to my knowledge. Maybe he leaves town in sort of narration. It's like, well, my boyfriend's dead now, so I'm skipping town. I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't remember. He doesn't show up again after chapter two, I don't think. Yeah. No. He um doesn't. and it's just like <clears throat> would have been pretty useful also like richie not being gay until he has a gay thought about a target like eddie or some blonde guy in the arcade is such a straight thing to do where it's like he's not different he's he's straight until he sees a boy and then he becomes gay as long as he's looking
0: at that boy. And then. It's a, and also, like, it sucks because there is no gay representation in horror movies. Like, at no. all. Like, well, okay, in, in indies, yes. In mainline horror movies, literally right now, it is Richie. And one other character from one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies who is not stated in the movie to be gay, but a lot of people read that oh into God. the text. It is those two. And I understand why the horror movie liking community has latched onto Richie as a yes! gay icon. <laughs> like feel... good for y'all.
1: I'm am j- i I'm like rambling <clears throat> and losing the thread here so much. But he, he would have been contextualized as gay, as an adult, before he comes to yes, Derry. Yes. Like, that would have been part of his scene, literally in any way. It would have been a part of his childhood, even if he was closeted. You get parts from his perspective. And it would have been something that he knew about himself when he came to Derry again. Yes. Because it's not the kind of thing you forget with your town memories and it just feels like it's like it's so straight to just kind of tack it on top as like a memory that you have of your childhood. Yeah. That's not how sexuality like works. It's not like Bev didn't like forget she was straight after Derry and then like never marry a man. That didn't happen. It happened very differently. It's not like like oh my god, I forgot I'm straight. I forgot that I uh,
0: this is, like, uh, they <laughs> they play it that like because he forgot that he has feelings for Eddie he forgot that he was gay which makes but no like, sense what yeah and that, which makes no sense that's what I was trying to talk about before when I
1: I was I'm I'm losing I'm fading guys it's it's like always there with you even if there isn't a target of your affections
0: right and like the way they play it in the movie is extremely like. He sees Eddie again for the first time and like remembers that he, I guess, was in love with Eddie or whatever, and and then that it brings didn't even do that though. right, and they, and it's 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 subtextual, but it's like Ben sees Bev for the first time and like remembers that he had a crush on Bev, but like we we know that Ben is and Bev are still heterosexual. <laughs> we don't have any context to know or understand in the moment that Richie and Eddie see each other again for the first time that Richie is having a romantic emotion and
1: the most annoying part is that it would be so easy with Richie cuz he's a celebrity he's a he's a disc jockey well in the in the
0: movie they make him like a stand up comedian which i understand cuz like
1: it's, We're not a gonna, more, yeah, it's, it's a little more It's, it's relevant. Really hurt, yeah. Nobody cares about radio. But, as I say as an old man. Um, but, like, at, as a celebrity, like, it would be very easy for him to be an out celebrity and then the other characters bring that knowledge to the viewer. Yeah. With, like, oh, yeah, Richie. I forgot I had any connection to him. And it's, like, how Richie was gay. And, like, they could just have that. They could even make it be, like, Funny.
0: You could just like have him be a stand-up comedian who does bits about how he's gay,
1: right? And then like when they lose all their memories, they're like, Richie Tozier, the stand-up comedian who's gay, is the same as my friend who who killed it with me. Like, so like that would have been a really funny moment in the movie. And they just were like, No, we're gonna like pretend that the censors are as bad as they were in 1980 and have the gayness be in glances, and that's
0: it. Well, it's been two hours. <laughs> um, I, are you kicking me off your podcast? I'm not kicking you off your podcast. <laughs> I, I feel like there's still a lot more that can be said about this book, obviously, because it's, like, a very long book, and it covers a lot of topics and themes, Oh my, my god, there's themes! Oh my god, there's so many <laughs> themes! My god, the themes! Do we want to talk about anything else? Is there anything else we want to say about this book as, like, a whole... It's good. It's good! <laughs> it's it's obviously problematic in, a, in such a way that, like... Again, it's been discussed by smarter people than me. You should definitely go into it knowing... What you're getting into, especially if you know that some of it is going to be stuff that is going to get to you. Some of the writing and such is not always the best, but I like it.
1: (laughs) It has a lot of value in it, where it's never a slog. It's sometimes strange, alarming, and upsetting. Yes. But... There's a lot of value in many, many, many parts of it. That and, it's really, in my opinion, it was worth it. Yeah. I really looked forward to the time I spent listening to 50 hours of It by Stephen King.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, it really doesn't feel like it's as long as it is. I know that that's a thing that people say about books, kind of when they're just like talking out of their ass. It really doesn't feel like it. And I promise you you will enjoy that the time the time that you spend with these characters and you will find something of value in this book and i feel like all of my favorite horror books are a little imperfect and there is always something upsetting or weird or messy but that's just horror baby it's that your sign off no should i stop talking no that's horror baby <laughs> Andrew will sue me if I use that as I sign off. So that's Stephen King's It. Da, 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 da.
1: <laughs> Alyssa. Yes? Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. You had to force me.
0: I did. <laughs> um, do you have anything that you want to plug? Or it doesn't have to be a personal thing. It can be like something cool that you're personally enjoying recently or like another book that you've read that you like. Wow. Yeah.
1: Really put me on the spot, Marn. No.
0: <laughs> it can also be a personal project that you want people to check out.
1: No, I mean, one of my personal projects is relevant enough. So I run a book review blog called Reading While Queer. That's reading-wild-queer.tumblr.com. And I try to do reviews of books by queer people about queer experiences as diverse as I can. And we come out with, like, one book a month that I review. So, you know, check it out if you want more like this. Especially the end of our discussion here with <laughs> us yelling about Richie Jojo.
0: Yeah, it's good. Um, And you also tag the books on your blog by what representation is in them. Yeah, I try to be specific because, my God, it's hard to find
1: stuff. So I tag it, you know, from the LGBT acronym, what specifically is in there. I tag for like mentally ill protagonists, disabled protagonists. I, I tag my rating, whether it's good, mediocre, or bad. I tag by the names of the books and the author. So, you know, try to make things easy to find. Because
0: it's, it's hard out there. It really do be hard out there to find good queer fiction. Where can people find you on social media?
1: Um, you can find me on
0: Twitter at I'm a joy
1: K that's I M A J O Y K.
0: with an at sign at the beginning, please. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at corpse survivors. Hey guys, it's future Marn. Uh, this is the part of the outro where past Marn makes a joke about there not being a Twitter for the show. Uh, but that is not true anymore. You can find us on Twitter at dead letter pod. Uh,
1: Hell yeah! Hell yeah, horror! <laughs> Alright,
0: that's it for
1: us today!
0: <laughs> this has been another meeting of the Dead Letter Society. Thank you for coming. I don't have a sign-off yet. Martin, that's bad. <laughs> I know. Listen, it took us, like, ten episodes to get That's ours, baby!
1: <laughs> well, you had a good thing. You should just
0: You should just keep going with the theme. <laughs> that's Stewie Kicks It, baby! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hi everyone. I'm Andrew.
0: Hi, I'm Marn.
1: This is the Argonauts podcast. Each week, I'm going to try and solve an old defunct ARG, and Marn's going to tell me what I should have done instead. That's true. Marn, what ARGs have we covered so far?
0: So far, we have covered Spectacular Organic Frog Fractions 2, Sexy Girl Max 2019, and This is My Milwaukee.
1: And that list is only going to continue to grow. Yep. Come check us out every other Thursday on the Orange Groves Network.
0: And you can find us at ArgonautsPod.com.